For part two of the series, what I'd like to do is jump into a text in Matthew that, that will sound kind of similar to where we were last week. In Matthew chapter 18 in verse one to five, so a different book from last week of the Bible, but a similar sort of conversation, which helps us continue with this journey that we're on. At that time, Matthew chapter 18 says, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? He called a child whom he put among them and said, truly I tell you, unless you change and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever becomes humble like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. So just like hold a text like that for a moment and think about what Jesus is saying here. You'll hear the echoes of the text that we read last week, but just some slightly different stuff going on where we hear this similar and consistent message for Jesus. That the call of being kingdom people is to be like a child. Now, Christians have misheard this text for many years and thought that childlike was essentially a synonym for childish. And, um, and so we've probably got about two millennia of church history of Christians basically having a meltdown when they don't get everything they want now. Right? And I'm sometimes kind of suspicious that this comes from confusing childish and childlike. Being childish is pretty straightforward and easy. I am very good at it. Being childlike in the way that Jesus calls me to that seems to require certain strengths from me that I'm uh, not great at sometimes. Uh, and perhaps we can relate to this, that, that what does it mean to be childlike? So if we step back in this text for a moment, and let's ask, well, where does this text begin? And it begins with a classically human conversation. It's fascinating to see that here we are reading a text written by somebody, uh, you know, 2,000 years ago in a, in a foreign language about a culture that would be foreign to us, about a society and worldview, and about a technological place that would be hugely different from us. So this conversation is happening between Jesus, 12 disciples, uh, one child. You know, the educational level amongst the disciples won't be hugely high. It will definitely not be high amongst the child. And they're in this sort of dust of, of some sort of Palestinian uh, place and, and they're talking about who is the best, which immediately sounds like the kind of conversation we have on a weekly basis in 21st century Calgary. And even if we're not having that conversation, like I realize most of us have the sort of social awareness that kind of walking into your workplace and going, I am the best is probably not what we do, right? But actually in the way that we often live in how we do things, we're constantly asking that question. You know, is the guy next to me at work on going on a better vacation than I am? Does my neighbor have, have better roof shingles than me? You know, is my car better than their car? And we're constantly constantly wrestling around these questions of where am I in the scale? And I know we talk about this a lot, but it seems to me to be a profoundly human question that keeps coming up again and again in the Bible. This is essentially a story of metrics and we want to measure where we're at. Now, I think it's really interesting to think about how we work as humans in this sort of context because we're reading an ancient story and now it's drawing us into really simple questions of everyday life, which I think is one of the beautiful things that the Bible text will often do to us. But what's interesting to me is, so the disciples raise a question about metrics. Okay, who's the best Jesus? You've got to let us know. And Jesus brings a child 
And he brings that child and he places them in their midst. In Jesus' culture, if you remember, we talked about this last week, children had almost no status. Right? Children had very little importance in society until they reached a particular age. So to bring a child, to ask a question, who's the greatest, and for Jesus to bring a child in, these 12 disciples are struggling to compute this. Like this is, what are you going to do with a child, Jesus? What's that got to do with a question about the greatest? I think that the average person in the time of Jesus would automatically assume that the first this thing from the greatest would be a child. But this anonymous child, we don't know their name, we don't know whether it was a boy or a girl, we don't know anything about them. This anonymous child becomes rooted into the scriptural story and their innocence of who they are as a child is then contrasted against what we'll call the scarcity mindset of the disciples. Because you see, the disciples are living in this mindset which generally gets sort of framed and discussed as a scarcity mindset where they have this deep belief that there's not enough for everyone to go around. So the key response for them is to get themselves into a position that they're the best. Because if they can get into the most successful position, that will look after them and that will ensure that they are okay. The interesting thing about this story that Jesus is setting up, so we have this idea of scarcity going wrong around these group of disciples and their thought process is like, where am I on the scale, Jesus? Where am I? Am I above him or below him? Like, how's it all relating? And then Jesus brings in a child. And for me, what's fascinating about that is that children don't believe in scarcity. Scarcity is something we've learned Scarcity is something we've picked up somewhere along the journey. Somewhere we decided there wasn't enough to go around and we've shared that message. But children, I don't know if you've ever spent any time with children, they don't believe that. Children believe there's enough for everyone. Children believe that there is no limit on what you can have and what you can do. So maybe you run a social experiment one day. Take a child, preferably one you have legal right to take. That would... uh, That would be helpful. Uh, Otherwise, we have to do a different sermon series. But take a child and just take them to a toy store. And for a few minutes, as you wander around a toy store with an eight or nine-year-old or seven or six-year-old child, you will see what it looks like to not believe in scarcity. Because they will say, I want this toy here. And they will say, and I also want this toy here. And I also need that toy there. And this huge teddy bear that covers the whole corner of the, the room, I also need that. And you start to get terrified because your scarcity starts to kick in. Eventually, they start asking for toys that you can't afford to buy. You know, when the children are young and they just want three buck toys, you feel like a king. You're like, yes, you can have this toy and this toy and also this toy. But then the toys start to get more expensive and now it's, no, you cannot have a horse uh, because... Because I don't know how to feed a whole horse. Uh, you know, and, and, then, and then where I live at the moment is I have to be highly suspicious of the toys that I'm asked to buy. Because, well, this looks like a lovely stuffy. But then I get home and realize this stuffy is part of a set that has 7,000 stuffies in it. And, and, and apparently I'm living with someone who intends to own all of them. Uh, and has no, no bearing for a pastor's salary. And so there's no scarcity there. But then somewhere along the line in our journey, we as children learn, oh, there's not enough to go around. And the moment we learn there's not enough to go around, we start protecting what we have. We start thinking, well, this is mine and I need to keep it and I don't want to share it. And slowly this happens and we think that's intrinsic to us. But increasingly what we, what we have to identify is that we're learning it. We're learning it from our parents. We're learning it from our environment. In their book, Another Kingdom, these three scholars, uh, Peter Block, Walter Brueggemann, and John McKnight, they they frame this really helpfully for us by saying, if we construct an economy 
where quantities are controlled based on the belief that there is never enough for all, then we must compete to determine the winners. We begin this with grades in the first grade. There is the presumption that competition is essential, and so there must be a normal distribution of grades. All students cannot receive high marks. If I get an A, someone in the class must perform poorly. Our message to our children is essentially grow or die. If you, don't, if you don't get to the top, then you're gonna get trampled down. And then what happens is we subtly, along with that message, sneak in another message, that acceptance, that welcome, that community only is limited to a very small group of people. That acceptance isn't for everyone. That success isn't for everyone. That you must fit into these particular parameters so that you can be the type of person that you're supposed to be in our society. Another way to think about it is this. Imagine if um, everybody in your class did get an A. Or, well, more realistically, imagine this. And this sort of thing happens quite regularly. Uh, like an annual year of testing goes by for our children and the newspapers report on the statistics. And the statistics tell us that this year, children's on a children on average are doing 2 or 3% better than last year. Do you notice how the newspapers and we ourselves always respond to that, that kind of analytical curve? You never hear people say, man, our teachers must be getting way better. You never hear people say, our children must be getting way smarter. No, what we cynical humans say is, those tests must be getting easier. Because something gets uncomfortable in us when we see everybody start to go, do well. We start thinking, no, no, we can't have everybody doing well because we've bought into this myth. It's not a biblical truth, by the way. This myth that there's not enough to go around. And then what happens is we start to kind of push that into our children. And we encourage them to live out adversarial scenarios. And the problem with adversarial scenarios is you stop thinking about how to be your best and instead you start thinking about how to beat everyone Else. So your agenda in life ceases to be, how can I be all that God has made me to be? And your agenda becomes, how do I just be better than everybody else? And Jesus seems to say that that's going to cause us problems in the kingdom. If we're going to preface our life for the question about who's the greatest, we're going to have kingdom problems. But then what Jesus does, which is quite interesting, I think, is kind of helps us you know, just live in that by starting to shape out what does this child potentially look like. Because something happens when you are in a, a sort of setting where, where you're competitive and where you're trying to figure out what becomes, what's the best way to be the best. Is you start pushing everything in towards the future, including your hopes. So maybe you've noticed this happen in someone's life close to you or maybe you've even experienced it in your own life. That because you're on this journey now to try and be better than everybody else, you assume I've got to get somewhere in that particular journey. And we decide in our own psyche that once we get there, we will be happy. And so we say, hey, but when I can get that job promotion or when I get in that office over there or when my kids get to this particular university or this car or these clothes or that particular vacation or that particular home, whatever it is, we push all of our hope onto that thing and say, when we get there, everything will be awesome. And we subtly teach the same to our kids. Get those top grades you'll do really well. Get all, get all this stuff together and go to that university, you'll do really well. Get this job, this career, this partner. And we're constantly pushing things into the future saying once you get it, then you'll be happy. The problem is when we get it. And we get those things and realize 
Happiness wasn't as connected to that as we thought. Actually, we got the car, the job, the family, the house, the vacation, or whatever it was, and we realized, I'm still not quite sure. This is known by social scientists as the arrival fallacy. The idea being essentially that we constantly believe that once we arrive at a particular place or location or moment in our lives, everything will come together. But it ignores, and a lot of us want to live by this and we even teach it to our children, but it ignores a basic problem with humans is we constantly buy into the thought that there's still more, there's always better and we don't have enough. Think about the disciples. They are stood there with Jesus. So who is Jesus? Well, to them, Jesus is this long expected Messiah. Jewish people have been waiting for years for the Messiah. We read the story retrospectively, we realize they're right, he was the Messiah. He was bringing uh, sort of all of this liberation that they were, they were, well, kind of related to what they were hoping for. Out of all the history of Israel, the Messiah appears at a very particular moment and he calls 12 men to come and be part of his inner circle. So this group of 12 men are the inner circle of the Messiah that centuries of people have waited for. Are you tracking with me? What would you think if you were in that group? Like, you know, if I was in that group, man, life would be awesome. If I was one of Jesus' key disciples, it would be awesome. Imagine getting to spend three years just wandering around with Jesus, front row seats for the feeding of the 5,000, you know, a, 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 a in the building view of the guy coming down through the roof, you know, like you, you've got, you know, that would be awesome, right? Except the text tells us that you get into that inner circle and here's your question, which of us do you think is the best? Like of all of the history of Israel, it's us 12, but the 12 still think, yeah, but one of us must be like, Jesus, do you have like a list? Uh, is there like, where's me? Judas is 12, we know that. Uh, we're, we're not sure about Peter and John. Peter seems to think he's the best. John definitely thinks he's the best. Uh, like of all the people in history, you have this immense privileged position, but it's still not enough. We just want more. And Jesus brings this child in and puts them in the middle of them and says, actually, you need to be like this child. Perhaps there's a question for us to think about what is it about our culture that we are passing on? What is it about our culture that, that lives in this arrival fallacy that's sort of saying, actually, if you're successful, you'll find contentment and happiness. And despite the fact that most of us are easily aware of the fact that arriving at a certain form of success rarely brings the contentment we want, we still kind of teach in our society and to our children that this is how you will live. The problem is, it starts to eventually drain our hope. It starts to eventually drain our energies. It starts to eventually pull us into a place that if we're constantly living thinking better is just around the corner, thinking that when I get there, I'll be happy, the toll on your mental health is immense. And all you need to do is pick any of the stories you've seen in the media over the last few years and realize that people that we would put up on the covers of magazines as having it all very regularly come out and tell us this is not as happy a life as you might think. So why do we keep inflicting on our children? Well, while we're thinking about that question, let's go back to the text because we didn't read the whole story. The story so far has a, has a question about who's the best and a beautiful moment where Jesus brings a child into the middle of this group of privileged, uh, sorry, the 12 of all of Israel's history, men that are walking beside Jesus. This child comes in, Jesus says, be humble and be like them because that's the way of the kingdom. But he doesn't stop there. He then continues and says, if any of you 
put a stumbling block before one of these little ones who believe in me. It would be better for you if a great millstone were fastened around your neck and you were drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world because of stumbling blocks. Occasions for stumbling are bound to come, but woe to the one by whom the stumbling block comes. Like, whoa, Jesus, that got dark real quick. Like, cute little kid, be humble like the kid, let's all look at the kid as a lesson, everybody must kill themselves. Like, whoa, it's like a trigger warning for a second here, you know. And not like, not like, you know, just simply putting stumbling blocks in the way, Jesus says, you better go and throw yourself in the sea. We were talking about this, this verse this week in, in, the, in the team, and we were discussing that as far as we're concerned as 21st century people, we think Jesus' child protection policy is a little harsh. Uh, can you imagine if you turned up at Westside for the first time and you got your kids and you're like, I want to leave them in East Hall, but I'm not sure how they're going to be treated. What's your guys' child protection care? How do you do plan and protect? And we're like, well, if we have somebody that we think is just even causing a stumbling for our kids, we just drown them out back. <laughs> you know, like, no wonder it's hard to pick up volunteers. <laughs> Jesus is really harsh, but let's just think about this one. This is Jesus we're talking about. This is a Jesus that we talk about who's full of grace. This is a Jesus who is literally forgiving the people who are killing him, right? So this is like peak grace that we would expect from Jesus. And yet when he gets to the subject of children and when he gets to the subject of potentially just doing something that would be perceived as damaging to a child, you see this completely different side to Jesus. And I think that bears some reflection. That if this guy who would forgive the very people executing him has such a hard line for children, we see that the importance of what is happening with our children is clearly profound. Now, at some level, Jesus is doing a very classic rabbinic thing here, which is to sort of exaggerate. So millstones are these huge stones that have a hole carved in the middle of them or placed in a mechanism that kind of crushes the grains that you need. There, there really isn't probably many boats in and around the area that Jesus is currently in that would be big enough to float with a millstone in it. So if you tie a millstone around your neck, you're not going to get off the beach, much less out into the depth of the sea so you can drown yourself. But Jesus is painting this caricature sort of cartoon at some level to say this is how serious it is that we talk correctly around and about children. Jesus is essentially saying that if our attitude in life is to hinder children, is to cause them to stumble, is to knock them away from the kingdom life, we're essentially ending our own life we're unwisely creating a series of events that will bring us to an end. So in a very classic rabbinic way, his way of sort of talking about this person drowning themselves is actually a way of saying that's essentially what you're doing to yourself if we don't care for and bring justice to children. And it's funny to me that when we talk about this, we naturally go and think about the stumbling blocks that we are aware of, the things that we don't like, the things that we're not certain of, the things that we think, yeah, that's ugly. But the kingdom life, and remember the conversation that this is happening in is a conversation about who's the best, a very normal human conversation. And here Jesus starts to talk about stumbling blocks. I find myself wondering, how do we navigate as influencers, as people that have influence on younger people all the time in our life, no matter what age we are, how do we navigate avoiding the stumbling blocks when the stumbling blocks are actually things that we like and approve of? 
How do we navigate a way that ensures that some of the stuff that we think is perfectly normal, the kingdom might call us to think differently about? Or perhaps a different way of asking this question uh, and using more theological language is, we talk a lot as a community about being a community of grace. And grace seems to be at the heart of the gospel and it's the heart of salvation. But there's a tendency sometimes to purely think about grace in this kind of exclusive little bubble that relates purely to your spirituality. So yes, I believe in the grace of Jesus. Jesus found me and saved me and it has no bearing on who I am. It's just an expression of his love. But very, very commonly what happens is although we fully appreciate or we think we fully appreciate the grace of Jesus who has found us and affected our spiritual life, the rest of our lives can so easily just still end up working on the standard metric system of the rest of the world. That the rest of the things, so we say we love Jesus, but the way we go about our working life, our home life, our relationships, life is still built into the ideas of the rules and the regulations of achievement of how do you become the best. And so I find myself asking, how do we as a people, and this is a question for us as a church, also a question for those of us individually who have influence over, over children. The question seems to be, how do we let grace seep out of the boundaries that we've put in it and start to affect how we live? It strikes me that you can talk to children all day long about grace. That you can be a spiritually graceful person, but ultimately the thing that will influence is how you live. Parents often complain about, uh, and I'm no different from many parents, that we often complain about the fact our kids are never listening. Right? You ever, you ever, you ever, if you have kids, have you ever said that? Feels like they're not listening to me. And you guys are like, no, we're Canadian. Our kids are always polite and listening to us. And... Uh, It feels like our kids are not listening. And somebody told me once, just bear in mind, they may not be listening, but they're always watching. Your children are always watching. They're watching what they see. They're watching what what you do. And if all we do is talk about grace, but live in metrics, one message is louder than the other. So what does it look like to live in grace? What does it look like to tell a story in our own life that models what God calls us to? The problem for me, you see, is in the Western context, most of us are highly pressured to live based on this uh, way of thinking, that God helps those who help themselves. In a survey a few years ago in the United States, the question was asked, what's your favorite Bible verse? The winner, this one, which is not in the Bible. But we want this to be true. This is the way we'd love to live. That I'll work really hard, I'll put all the effort in, and then God will come along and bless me. So we get a new job, or we get a new house, or everything goes well for us, and we say, isn't God blessing me? And we're creating an equation in our life that says, when I do better, that's God working with me. And what happens is we start leaning into this notion of what is essentially a doctrine of earning. It's a doctrine that says, if you can help yourself enough, then you can end up with a place where you deserve what you've got. And if we're not careful, we start to feed this to our children. That the way to get ahead is purely down to you. It's all about you. It's all about where you're at and what you're doing and what success you're achieving. But if we're not careful, that starts to slowly push against a doctrine of grace. In the fourth century, there was a, uh, there was a, a, Brit- a British theologian uh, by the name of Pelagius. And realistically, I hope by now you're learning that if ever anyone is a British theologian, you want to be slightly concerned about them. Um, Is my accent fading that much that I need to prefix what I mean by that? But 
Pelagius was this British theologian and he postulated this idea in the fourth century that actually humans were born with a free will that was so profoundly free that it was within their capacity to choose to do everything that they did. Therefore, if a, cho- if a human so chose, it was possible for them to live out the perfect life, that they could actually be fully self-sufficient and get themselves to God on their own. Another famous Christian theologian at the time that you probably have heard of called Augustine, he came along and and argued with Pelagius around this doctrine and he wanted to ensure that this doctrine didn't take root in the church. Because Augustine says, no, no, no. He says, we are fragile. We are fallible in nature and therefore we absolutely are required to lean into the grace of Jesus. We're required to lean in and hope and trust and believe that Jesus can sustain us because left to ourselves, we won't be able to do it. What does a, you know, a fourth century theologian like Pelagius have to do with us? Well, in a recent article on Pelagius, Joshua Hawley says this, the Pelagian view says that the individual is most free when he is most alone, able to choose his own way without interference. Family and tradition, neighborhood and church, these things get in the way of uninhibited free choice. And this Pelagian idea of freedom is one our cultural leaders have embraced for decades now. A 1,600-year-old doctrine is actually very, very prevalent in our own lives, in our own society, in our own cultures and countries. That God helps those who help themselves. However, this creates a perfect storm for us because it, what happens is we end up with a spirituality that might want to lean into grace, but a lifestyle and a way of being and existing that constantly assumes that I'm responsible for myself. And therefore, scarcity comes in. I gotta get ahead. The desire to be the best comes in. The belief that once I get there, everything will be successful and happy. The arrival fallacy kicks in and our theology starts to become difficult. I also think that what happens if we don't identify and observe how our societies tend to work this way is spiritually affects our children too. Because we end up with a view of God who sets standards that we've got to hurdle over, who sets walls that we've got to climb over, and God becomes just another rule setter that pulls us towards the anxiety-ridden life of achievement. And of course, it's not what the Bible teaches us. In Ephesians chapter two and verse eight to 10, one of the most beautiful pieces of scripture that should be constantly referred to in our own lives to remind us of not just what's happening when God saved us, but how he calls us to be. Paul says to this church in Ephesus, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And notice this really offensive little phrase here, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one may boast. And then just look at what Paul says here. For we are what he has made us. So it's not that we've picked ourselves up by our bootstraps. It's not that our successes have brought us to this particular place. But rather we are what he has made us. Created in Christ Jesus for good works. Which God prepared beforehand to be our way of life. I think that grace calls us to subvert the paradigm of our society to protect our kids from the stumbling blocks of trying to live in the right standard, of trying to live in the right way. And actually, if we're not careful, our society calls us to live anti-grace. But what if our job 
What if our job as parents, what if our job as a Christian community, what if our job as family members is not to simply prescribe to our kids a way of life that repeats the arrival fallacy that we know to be untrue? What if our children could learn from us what grace looks like? And this is what I love about this passage that we're wrestling with today, that Jesus, in his kingdom language, legitimizes children. Not only do children just matter, they are actually the model of the kingdom. Children are just not something the disciples should think a little bit about. They're actually what the kingdom has called us to look like. If we keep following our kingdom, our cultural patterns, the future is quite clear. There's more stress for us and our children. There's more trying to keep up. There's more failing to keep up. There's a growth in hopelessness and despair. It's the way that the world will go unless we choose to start to think about living differently. And the kingdom of God, 12 disciples who think that the argument is which of us is the best, find themselves staring at an anonymous child and Jesus says, this is the model of the kingdom. So the children are legitimated, the children have value. And I think the call for justice is to keep them in that place. And why I say that is because I don't think we're often all that far ahead of the ancient world. We look at the ancient world and say, well, kids didn't really matter back then. But do we treat kids with the same respect that we treat adults in the contemporary world? From the small little things to the big huge things, we're sometimes out of kilter with that. How often do we laugh at children? They do something silly, we laugh at them. They make a mistake, we laugh at them. They say something slightly wrong, we laugh at them. And yet, try that at work tomorrow. If your colleague makes a mistake, just like video it, put it on Facebook and send it to all of your family and say, look how stupid my colleague is and point and laugh. Very important to point and laugh, all right? Your, your colleagues probably won't respond overly well to that. We condescend children. We don't give them agency. We don't allow them priority on all sorts of occasions. Children should be seen and never heard. But ad, as adults, do we relate to that? As adults, do we agree with that? Is that the model of the, of the, of the kingdom? It's pretty common as parents to joke about how much alcohol you need in order to cope and survive as a parent. But we would never say that about another adult. It's rare that we would think that was a subject that was appropriate to talk around, to condescend someone in their presence by saying how hard it is to look after them. But this happens with children all the time. We joke about the alcohol that we need. We hit them. We manipulate them. We criticize them when they have emotions that are exactly the same as ours. And therefore, we delegitimize them. And Jesus brings a child into the middle of the disciples and says, that is what the kingdom looks like. And so, perhaps we also just need to learn to step into what it is that Jesus is asking us for. What does it look like to delegitimize our children by always placing them second? They're second behind work. They're second behind television. They're second behind computers. They're second behind phones. They're second behind computer games. All these things that we allow to take their priority so that we don't need to take their priority. And it's hard for us because our society's calling us to say these are the most important things. But just remember this story in Matthew 18 where Jesus places the child in the middle of this group of disciples and says that's what our kingdom looks like. Tal Ben-Shahar, who is uh, the social scientist that kind of started to first use this term, the arrival fallacy, as a result of his research, makes this stunning and unsurprising at some level comment. The number one predictor of happiness is the quality time we spend with people we care about and who care about us, 
In other words, relationships. So we're looking for happiness. We assume we'll find it in success. We teach our children that they'll find it in success. When actually, perhaps all the pieces are there with 12 disciples being shown a child and just being reminded that it's in here, in this model and way of being. And a child who's not aware of scarcity, but a child who just wants to be around their family and their friends, this perhaps is the way of the kingdom. So here's my thought for you this morning. If, if we can raise our kids in a church, in a family, in a home life, where grace isn't something simply reserved for salvation, where, where grace actually affects our whole lives, maybe then it will be easier for our children to not only have good relationships with us, but also with the Jesus who loves them. If they live in a world where they're constantly told they have to earn it, it becomes much harder for them to believe that there's a God who doesn't need them to earn it. But if that becomes the society and the culture they live in, perhaps rather than being crowded by stumbling blocks of rules and achievements, instead they find themselves in the company of a God who loves them. What if our kids learn that it's not God helps them who help themselves, but rather God helps us best when we learn to trust and rely on his grace in every part of their lives. So let me pray this blessing over us this morning. May you learn to see beyond scarcity and the perpetual need for achievement. Instead, may you experience and model grace that calls us into formative, shaping, and saving relationship. And may your kids, may our kids as a community be radically legitimized, protected, and valued by Jesus and all of us. And may God's grace and peace be with you. Amen and amen.